This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Jody Vance in for Mike Smith on this January 4th, 2022. Good morning to you. It's a big show we have lined up today, and we're going to dive right into our first guest. He is an extraordinarily busy individual, longtime friend of our program. And if you are tuned in at all to, to COVID-19 news here or or south of the border on cable news outlets, uh, major news outlets, really anywhere in North America, you've likely seen his face, his telltale bow tie, steadfastly dropping truths to the masses, trying to protect people from COVID-19 from the beginning. Today, we're absolutely thrilled to have back with us the founding dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine, professor of pediatrics and molecular vir virology and microbiology at Baylor College of Medicine, where he is also director of the Texas Children's Hospital for Vaccine Development. Professor Peter J. Hotez is back with us. Thanks for doing this, Professor. Thank you, Jody. You got that all in. I hope we're not out of time. <laughs> I try. You do have a fairly stacked business card, but there's one area of it I want to key in on in our first segment. Luckily, we have a couple segments here. Let's talk about uh, all things COVID and Omicron, of course, but also specifically about the new vaccine that you and your team at Texas Children's Hospital Center for Vaccine Development, uh, along with your partner, uh, Maria Elena Botazzi, the, the vaccine that you two and your team have developed that's been granted emergency approval in India with Biological E. Give us the, take us on the story, take us on the journey, please. Sure, this is a low-cost recombinant protein vaccine, same technology used to make the recombinant hepatitis B vaccine that parents have been giving their kids in Canada for several decades now. Uh, excellent safety profile like the hepatitis B vaccine, great levels of virus-neutralizing antibody and simple refrigeration. And the best part is that technology is produced locally in places like India, Indonesia, Bangladesh, Vietnam, Brazil, and we've now licensed it and helped the co-development. No patents, no strings attached to India, Indonesia, Bangladesh, and now Botswana. And India is the furthest along, and they just announced its release for emergency use authorization. They've got 150 million doses ready now, and uh, they have plans for a billion doses uh, over the next over this year. So that will make a big difference, we think, in closing that global vaccine equity gap, which is so important because Omicron arose out of unvaccinated populations in Africa, Delta out of unvaccinated populations in India. So the key to stopping this pandemic is to vaccinate the Southern Hemisphere. And we now are, are in a good position to do that. And it goes to show you, you don't have to be a multinational pharma company. Again, no patents, no strings attached and, um, and doing this to save lives. Doing this to save lives and no, literally nothing in it for you except knowing that you are a part of something that is going to save possibly millions of lives, uh, Dr. Hotez. How, how is it that, explain the process of no strings attached, <clears throat> pardon me, no strings attached, the process of saying, you know what, this is what we've discovered, this works, we will hand it over so that as many people as possible can access this. 
this is the Toyota to the Ferrari or McLaren that is the the Pfizer or Moderna vaccine, is it not? Yeah, yeah. No, Lam- we we don't make Lamborghinis, um, but they, we think their performance features are almost as good in terms of um, protection and um, and even and may even be superior in terms of durability and other aspects. You know, I think this was a problem with U.S. Operation Warp Speed and, and a lot of the global policymakers. It was all about speed and innovation to rapidly immunize smaller populations in, in North America and Europe. Um, and, you know, and I was the beneficiary of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. I, I can't complain. Maybe it saved my life, and, and, and that's great. But the problem is with the exclusive reliance on speed innovation and the multinationals, we left out half the world or three-quarters mm. of the world and not making a vaccine available to them. And I knew this was going to be a huge issue, and this is what we've always done. I mean, we've spoken pre-pandemic, Jody, about our parasitic disease vaccines for global health. We have that same philosophy. We just applied it to COVID-19 because we had also been working on SARS and MERS vaccines pre-pandemic. Yeah, we've been talking for almost 10 years, Dr. Hotez. I've um, been so grateful for all that you have uh, been able to educate us on, help our listener, help me to understand more. You're the first person who ever said to me, remember these two words, social distancing. And that was in February of 2020. You often are ahead of the curve on what is happening, uh, not just with this pandemic, but even when we were talking measles, when measles outbreaks were happening and, and the, the whole anti-vax community wanting to, to point fingers at how this is all just big pharma trying to you know, take over our lives or, or move us in a certain direction, it really does fly in the face of those who might uh, call it a big pharma cash grab when people like you and, and your team at Texas Children's Hospital are literally putting together the science and then offering it up with no strings attached, with no profits coming in to line your pockets. Yeah, this is what's the unfortunate aspect of the anti-vaccine lobby is they not only target unfairly vaccines, claiming they cause autism and all this nonsense, but then they try to target scientists. And and I, you know, get, especially in this pandemic, it's been a lot of aggression from the far right trying to attack me. And, and you see this play out on Twitter and even Fox News goes after me night after night. And uh, and it's all to it's all to exercise the control and authority. And it's unfortunate that they do it at the expense of science and scientists. And let's get back to the science uh, that we are uh, jumping off the top here with. What is your vaccine called? Uh, Where do we keep our ear to the ground on it? How do we follow along on that story? And and is there a way to support you and your team in uh, in helping to get the, the, the areas of the world that have almost been forgotten as first world countries that ramp up to the to the 90 percentiles in some countries like Canada? Well, what we do is we transfer the technology, as they say, and no strings attached to these developing country vaccine manufacturers. And that's actually what they call themselves. It's the Developing Country Vaccine Manufacturers Network. And, um, and the furthest along is India, where they've named the vaccine Corbivax. And, and we give them ownership. They own the vaccine. They work out the clinical trials plan and the rollout of the vaccine and the licensure with their with their local regulators in the WHO. So the first one out of the starting gate is called Corbevax, C-O-R-B-E-V-A-X. And it's been released now for emergency use authorization in adults, but now they're doing um, finishing clinical trials in children. 
So we're hoping this could be the pediatric vaccine for the world and also looking at this wow. vaccine for a booster for vaccines that aren't working as well that this could boost it. So multiple uses. The only problem is we don't have a plan for this vaccine for the U.S. and Canada. We, we tried. We spoke to people in the Canadian government early on in the pandemic. We spoke to the U.S. government. Everybody was just so focused on the what I sometimes say in my despair, the shiny new toys, the mRNA, mm. the adenovirus. And they're good vaccines, but they have limits like any vaccine. And we are learning, and you can educate us on this. You know, I was rather surprised, what was it, three, four, five days ago when the uh, when the review or the, the intel, the scientific review came out about the J&J vaccine being possibly... Uh, an excellent booster dose that might, you know, crossing the the various um, vaccine makeup, the, like you say, recumbent vaccine versus protein based versus mRNA, um, maybe crossing these stimulates more of that T cell response or that longer immunity response. Uh, how much really have we learned over these past 23 months uh, and, and really the last year with vaccines? How much have we learned and are continuing to learn about just how to fend off uh, all variants of COVID-19. Well, well, I think, you know, we jumped to conclusions. I think that J, a lot of people express buyer's remorse about getting the J&J vaccine. And I've always thought it's a good vaccine in two doses, not as a single dose, mm. uh, and maybe give more durable, long-lasting protection. And and uh, so it's uh, people find it ironic that I'll say good things about other vaccines. I've been compared to Chris Kringle on Miracle at 34th Street, sitting in Macy's, advising people to get a better bargain at Gimbel's. But uh, I love it. Um, but you know, <laughs> I, I try. I try to do you know the best to tell people because there's a lot of people you know saying, "Oh, why did I get the J and J vaccine?" Part of it is right. because you know, so much of what we learn about vaccines is coming from the governments of Israel and the UK, and those vac- the J&J vaccine is not used there. So, but it, it's a good vaccine and gives pretty long, durable protection. Jody Vanson for Mike Smith. We are with Professor Peter J. Hotez. He is the founding dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine, professor of pediatrics and molecular vir- virology and microbiology at Baylor College of Medicine, where he's also the director of Texas Children's Hospital Center for Vaccine Development. Uh, so many pieces of the COVID puzzle, uh, Professor, have parents certainly up in arms and worried at this phase. Early days, it looked like uh, the coronavirus, the the SARS-CoV-2 was coming for our most vulnerable elders. Uh, it feels like the shift has happened with Omicron. Uh, certainly the news cycle out of the U.S. very much keyed in on, on kids. Uh, can you sort of give us the lay of the land uh, outside of the, you know, the, the fear-filled headlines? What are, we, what are you actually witnessing in the U.S. and, and on, for the global community as well with regard to kids? Well, what we're seeing is kids are getting infected at pretty high rates. I don't think this virus is necessarily targeting the kids selectively. I think they're just getting swept up in this firestorm or virus blizzard. And and a number of them are going into hospitals. Many are not being admitted because of COVID. They're, they're being admitted for whatever reason they're going to be admitted for, for their underlying conditions. And they're found to be COVID positive upon uh, upon testing but others are actually getting sick and they're getting uh, respiratory infections upper respiratory infections and some of them quite severe so you know there's this narrative out there that omicron is not a serious pathogen that it's 
that it's like the cold and people disparage it as omicold and this kind of nonsense. It's a serious pathogen. And so hospitalizations are going up. Um, not as much as you might have expected with Delta, but still hospitalizations are going up both for adults and kids. And you have the added problem that a lot of the healthcare workforce is getting sick. So, and so there's fewer people that take care of the sick and that creates a very dangerous situation. So because of those unique combination of factors, Omicron's a serious player and, and we have to take this epidemic very serious. When it comes to those who are being hospitalized with serious illness or even needing intensive care, is it largely unvaccinated people who are, are taking up the spaces in the hospitals or is it is it a mix? I'd say three quarters who are getting very sick or unvaccinated. We are also seeing some people who've gotten two doses of the mRNA vaccine who did not get their third dose. Um, what's happening there? is there are a lot of breakthrough infections. So two doses is giving some protection against severe illness, but not against symptomatic illness. You really need that booster. And there are some breakthrough infections with the booster as well, especially if you're a few months out from your booster. But very few people who are fully vaccinated and boosted are going into the hospital. So when you uh, look at what is starting to be garnered from uh, the the sort of end or the end of the real surge in South Africa or what you're seeing happening in the EU right now or the UK, uh, how do you uh, anticipate or how uh, you've always been ahead of the curve on this, Dr. Hotez. I hope I'm not putting you on the spot with this, but how do you see this next while playing out? This It feels like you said that blizzard or that firestorm. Uh, where do we go in the next weeks and months here with Omicron? Well, it really, it really depends. If it's like the UK or South Africa, it should start to decline in a couple of weeks. Um, so that's good news. Whether it continues to decline, and like in South, South Africa or the UK, we don't know for certain. If it did, then then it would be going down as quickly as it was going up. And then we got to think about what a post-Omicron world looks like. And a number of us are starting to think about that in terms of its implications. What kind of immunity, if any, does infection with Omicron give you? Um, I'm concerned that it won't be very durable because we've seen with other respiratory coronaviruses that immunity does not last long. So the key is convincing people, even if they've gotten Omicron infection, to still get vaccinated on top of that if they haven't already been vaccinated, because that will provide more durable protection and help you withstand new variants that are also arising as we speak out of the Southern Hemisphere because it's unvaccinated. So again, vaccinating the world is going to be paramount. Which brings us back to Corbivax, the vaccine that you and your team at Texas Children's Hospital, Texas Children's Hospital have uh, gotten the emergency authorization for use in India. Will it go elsewhere from there? How far spread could uh, the vaccine that you and your team developed uh, end up and how quickly? Well, BioE is committed, Biological E um, is committed to providing vaccine doses for the COVAX sharing facility. Uh, right. In addition, now we've licensed it to Indonesia, Biopharma, and Incepta, Bangladesh. And, and if they meet with similar successes, that will be additional doses for those countries in the world. And over time, we have a big order to fill. You know, we have to look at 9 billion doses for the world's low and middle income countries. So we've got a ways to go still. 
With you at the lead, I have great confidence. Uh, thank you so much for your time, uh, as always. Such a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. Always good to talk to you, Jody. All the best. Jody Vance in for Mike Smith this week. Glad to have you along. The new restrictions due to Omicron are weighing really heavily on many families with loved ones in long-term care. Many had hoped that this would never happen again. We will be restricting visitors to long-term care to essential visitors only. We need to decrease the numbers of people coming into our long-term care homes so that we can best protect the seniors and elders in our care homes and ensure that healthcare workers in those settings have uh, are able to manage and cope. This will be a measure that we'll have in place for as short a period of time as possible, and I will be reevaluating this on January 18th. Okay, yesterday here on the Mike Smith Show, Margaret in Abbotsford called in with her concerns over how this is hitting her family really hard. Why we are only having one essential visitor for care homes. My husband takes over an hour to feed him. He cannot talk. He cannot walk. So when we go in, we're helping the nurses because they, there isn't an, enough care aids. They're run off their feet. And my husband takes yeah. a lot of care. So I've got the two daughters that are coming in one in the night to feed him um, and shave him and get him ready for bed. And the other daughter comes in, does the same thing in the afternoon. I cannot go in every day, and also I don't drive in the snow, so one daughter comes, picks me up, and she comes in when I come in. The handy knot will not come up in the snow, and uh, it, it's it's disgusting to say that, only one essential visitor. They're, we're older, and we just can't. It's a burnout, and I, like I say, those nurses are just run off their feet, and we're in there trying to help, and now you say 90 minutes, that's almost a time to feed him. And one of those curates are held up for my husband to do that. And constantly there's something that you have to do with them. And uh, you've got to allow that there is more than one essential visitor. Yep. Right now, this is a crisis. It's a crisis. You can hear the stress in Margaret's voice. I, we needed to talk this through immediately after Margaret appeared on the radio uh, with us yesterday on the Mike Smith Show. I reached out to a good friend of the program. He is the CEO of the BC Care Providers Association. Terry Lake is with us on the line. Hi, Terry. Hi, Jody, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, too. This is... It's hard to listen to, I have to say, mm-hmm. and for anyone who has a loved one in a long-term care, um, the stress is real without a pandemic. Uh, then you put the pressures of, of the pandemic on top of it and, and stretch that over a couple of years. And uh, you can hear in Margaret's voice uh, her concerns. And while I was speaking with Health Minister Adrian Dix last week, uh, specific to this, um, you know, the, the essential care v- visitor is not a blanket across the province in all care homes. Can you can you kind of help unpack why that is or, or how individual care homes uh, make different rules for their particular uh, place and space? Well, the definition of essential visitor is found on the uh, BCCDC website. And, you know, it leaves a room for interpretation. And um, it, it says... Uh, visits paramount to the resident's physical care and mental well-being, such as assistance with feeding or mobility, as Margaret described. Um, but it, it says that these are um, tasks that cannot be performed in the absence of the essential visitor. 
Well, if we were fully staffed or, uh, you know, in a situation without COVID, that mm-hmm. very well may be the case. But as Margaret said, the care aides uh, that are able to come to work are run off their feet. Nurses are run off their feet. So they really depend on a visitor, a family member to come and help out with those uh, chores like dressing and feeding. So it makes a situation that much worse in many ways, and it leaves the operator in a very, very uncomfortable position of determining who can be and who should not be an essential visitor based on these criteria that are open to interpretation. And in fact, different health authorities interpret them differently. They issue uh, directives that tell you how to manage an essential visit uh, creating a, a visitor plan for each essential visitor. So you can imagine all of the bureaucracy and paperwork on top of trying to look after people when you're short-staffed just, again, adds to the burden of what's going on in long-term care. You know, I think the goal is to protect residents of long-term care, and everybody agrees with that. And so vaccinating uh, with the third booster all the residents was moved up after pressure applied by the sector and the opposition. A very good decision that has uh, really, I think, mitigated the impact of uh, the Omicron virus on the residents. But we didn't see staff mandated to have that booster, and we certainly didn't see uh, health authorities on site uh, in a widespread way vaccinating staff. That would have been the best way to protect residents of long-term care, instituting rapid testing many months ago so that everyone had a supply and was very uh, you know, knowledgeable about how to implement this. These are the ways we could have protected residents without restricting family members. And okay, so going back to the definition of an essential care uh, giver, uh, who can change that? Is that a government level change? Like you say, the health authorities all have sort of a their own take on what the definition is, and it can it can vary within a health authority. Uh, in my experience, and in, in just in in hearing from from those, for example, in Delta, I had the experience at Delta View, and then somebody at another long term care home uh, in Delta uh, was back and forth with me saying, you know, yesterday that they weren't even allowed to do a visit at the window anymore and and it was just like what what is that well these these guidelines uh the definitions that you see on the cdc website are provided by the ministry of health obviously in consultation with the provincial health officer but again as you say they are interpreted differently by different health authorities and by different operators within a health authority and you know operators uh, always uh, are fearful of licensing uh, requirements and and making sure they're following to a T all the regulations put in front of them. And so some operators may err on the side of, of caution when it comes to allowing essential visitors, whereas others may be very liberal and uh, and take a different view. And it depends, of course, on the situation that's occurring in that care home, whether there's an outbreak or not, that will impact uh, how many staff are available to uh, to complete the bureaucracy that's required around an essential visit. Uh, So again, you know, if we just had some clarity and said, look, everyone deserves to have visitors and, uh, you know, let's use some common sense about the way we do this. Let's have rapid tests to keep people safe. Let's make sure visitors are masked. Uh, You know, these are the things that we can do without restricting the ability for people to, uh, to have family visitors. 
Jody Vance in for Mike Smith. We are carrying on our conversation with Terry Lake, the CEO of BC Care Providers Association. Always a great resource, uh, particularly for those of us who have had loved ones in long-term care. Navigating systems in various health authorities can be complex. Uh, so I'm not surprised that the phone lines have lit up. 604-280-9898. Star 9898 is a free call on your cell. Uh, Terry, are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, great. Let's start with Pat in Vancouver. Welcome to the show, Pat. Hi, Jody. Hi, Terry. Um, my mom has a friend who is in, um, I believe it's assisted living. Um, so she's not an essential uh, you know, caregiver or anything. But uh, if he's in assisted living, I'm assuming that means she can go visit him. So what are the rules? And the second part of the question is, what determines long-term care from um, assisted living? Because there are some facilities that have both within the same facility? Yeah, it's a good question, Pat. Uh, first of all, the difference between assisted living and long-term care is really the level of care that's required. Assisted living, uh, there can be six, up to six kinds of services provided on a regular basis to the resident, but they're not in need of 24-hour nursing care, whereas in long-term care, uh, that nursing care is provided at that level. Uh, usually, the rules um, are uh, administered uh, in long-term care and assisted living, most of the things we've seen to date. However, this last order, this restriction uh, to essential visits, uh, is only uh, on long-term care. So in assisted living at the moment, uh, nothing, to my knowledge, has changed. All right. Hopefully that answers your question, Pat. Thanks for calling in. 604-280-9898. Star 9898 is a free call on your cell phone. Anton in Port Moody, you are up next. Welcome to the show. Thank you for taking my call. Yeah, my mom's a 94-year-old uh, in a long-term care facility, El Hogue, out in White Rock. And last time they locked them down, essentially put them, you know, put them in prison. She went from happy-go-lucky to telling us she wanted to die you know, on on the small screen, um, FaceTiming, and to do this again to them, I mean, it's really about the money. You know, they don't want to provide funding for, you know, just proper masking. You don't need to be an LPN to check temperatures and check vaccinated people coming in, having proper protocol. That's all it's about. It's easy to lock down people. It's terrible. Well, Anton, certainly uh, appreciate how your mom deteriorated when she's been kept from her loved ones. Uh, And that's why we think it's so important that visits continue in a safe manner, of course, in in the ways that that I outlined. But there's no question the negative impact of uh, being shut out from your family. And you can't replicate that adequately uh, with tablets. I mean, it's helpful, but nothing replaces uh, the presence of a loved one in the home uh, to visit on a regular basis. I I would uh, perhaps quibble with the the money argument because the the province actually has been uh, stepping up to the plate in in a big way financially to support the sector. sometimes not in a timely way, which has created pressure on operators, but they certainly have put a lot more money into visitor screeners, for instance, uh, into overtime costs, into the extra costs of COVID. So I don't think it's about the money. I think it's a way of of looking like we're doing the right thing when, in fact, there are better ways to do the right thing, uh, which is protecting uh, residents of of long-term care from COVID. I sure wish I had had a uh, a rapid test at any point as an essential caregiver for my dad. Uh, That would have given uh, such 
relief. Uh, there was terror every time I walked into those doors, nor- knowing that I had to be there for him and I wanted to. I kept my bubble so incredibly tight and still I was terrified each and every time. And, and that can't be lost as well. Uh, the the stress level on the loved ones who really want to be there for uh, the person in care. And, and there's so much responsibility that goes with that as well. Let's uh, hit uh, next on the list here is Elizabeth in Delta. Welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you, and thank you for taking my call. And actually, it's more of a comment than a question. First, it's an incredible thank you uh, to Jody for covering this topic and for Terry, your ongoing advocacy and work on this. It is not easy. And for those of us uh, navigating the system with those in long-term care, we are grateful that it is um, getting the attention that it so deserves at this point. It, It... you asked the bang-on question first, Jody, and your answer, Terry, was so reassuring about the confusion and the lack of clarity and the ability to interpret what are the supposed guidelines right now around essential visiting. The interview that was done on the Mike Smith show through Jill Bennett yesterday and the CEO of another care home and the summary that's been provided since I think needs to be shared with everybody and the, his attitude towards um, families' role in long-term care is golden and what will make the difference. The stress put on residents, families, caregivers who are staff and management right now about this confusion is unnecessary, unhealthy, and is impacting so many people. So I just want to end with thank you for taking the time and putting the spotlight on this matter that is critical in our province right now. Well, that's uh, very nice of you to say, Elizabeth. And I believe that was Dan Levitt that was uh, on the show the other day. And, you know, Dan's just an example of, uh, you know, a a CEO of uh, an operator, uh, a non-health authority operator, that has the best interests of residents uh, in mind. And that's true across the sector. People don't get into long-term care um, for any other reason than, than to, to do the right thing and keep families together and provide the very best care. Uh, so thanks for recognizing that, Elizabeth. Uh, it is a very stressful time for all of those working on the front lines. And knowing that you're not alone, I go back to Anton, who was feeling the struggle, and the struggle is real. Uh, Anne in South Surrey, welcome to the show. Anne, what's your question for yes, Terry? Yes, hi. Good morning. I Good don't morning. have a parent now. Um, my mother died many years ago now, but I would like to ask a question. For um, If uh, my mum was in, home, in care, would I be able to take her out if I wanted to? And then, you know, as, on a temporary measure until this was all cleared? Yeah, they, there are, there is an ability to take your mom uh, if you if your mom was in long term care to take her uh, and bring her home for um, an extended period of time. That uh, has been available throughout COVID, and some people have taken that opportunity um, because they know that you know they for a short period of time at least they're able to meet the needs of their of their parent at home. It is very difficult and it's very stressful, uh, and you don't have that twenty four seven nursing. Uh, monitoring and care. Uh, but for some families, they're willing to, to do that for a period of time to give their parents or their loved one um, a bit of uh, time uh, in, a, in a home, more home-like environment. Although I would tell you that uh, our, uh, our care providers uh, think of, uh, of their homes as the true homes of, of the residents and try to do their best to make it feel like home. 
I would echo that for my my father when he was at Delta View. He was relaxed and and he felt he had Alzheimer's. He relaxed and and he felt very much so that that was his home. And on the uh, instances where we had to do, go somewhere for a medical appointment or what have you, where he wouldn't really understand where we were headed in the handy dart. Um, once returning, he would he would beam at the at the caregivers within uh, Cascades at Delta view and would immediately like fold right into it as though he were family there. I, I would, I would have hesitated to take him from that sort of cocoon of comfort that he felt at that community. I mean, I, a shout out to all of the care providers throughout BC who are working so tirelessly here. And, and Terry, I thank you for being open to, uh, to have the conversations with our listener. And there are so many people I'm getting DMS and emails and there are more phone calls to take. We got to do this again uh, sometime soon, if you wouldn't mind. Absolutely, Jody. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Thanks once again. Jody Vanson for Mike Smith. Thanks for, for uh, being along with us on this journey today. We've had a lot of content about COVID-19 and Omicron, uh, booster shots, half doses, full doses, what your situation might be. I uh, just want to put a little bit of a punctuation mark on how incredibly grateful we are for everyone who calls in, everyone who emails in, everyone who sends a DM and trusts people like Jason Tetra, like Brian, Dr. Brian Conway, uh, Keith Baldry, Richard Zussman, the team of people who are working very, very hard to ensure that all the facts are on the table for those who are feeling a bit confused about where we are right now in this pandemic. A good time to remind you that at 1.30 today, uh, the press briefing will be uh, taking place, the one with Provincial Health Officer Dr. Bonnie Henry and Health Minister Adrian Dix. You will hear it right here uh, on CKNW, 1.30 again in the Jill Bennett Show. So make sure you're tuned in for that. Right now, I want to pivot a bit. Uh, certainly, there is a COVID angle to this next discussion, but this is about home ownership. This is about affordability. This is about housing uh, in particular in BC, but wow, Metro Vancouver is always at the forefront of this. And uh, the BC assessments have come out. And for homeowners, a bit of an eye opener when you open up the uh, assessed value of your home and how much it has inevitably gone up year over year. It's what our property taxes are established upon. And the BC assessments, again, uh, we should explain them through in terms of when they're established and how they can evolve over the course of a year and, and when the numbers are actually released. Uh, let's bring in an expert on such things. Dane Itell is with us, the founder and lead analyst at Itell Insights. Dane, thanks for doing this. Hello, Jody. It's great to be speaking with you. So can you give us, for those who are like, well, I don't know, what's, what's assessed value? Is this a bank assessment? It's a, it's, a, it's a government assessment. Are they the same? Is, it, is one higher, lower, different? What, what does this impact? Um, 
unpack first what we're talking about for those who maybe don't understand what BC assessments are. Sure. So the BC assessment is actually taken uh, in July. So it's kind of a snapshot um, year over year metric from July of 2020 till July of 2021 is the actual assessment that's going to be uh, rolled out now. So the assessments do tend to lag the true market value in rising markets. Of course, properties sell above assessed proper or uh, assessed values. And during 2019, you saw a lot of properties selling below assessed values. So it is kind of a trailing uh, landmark price. So when it comes to what we are seeing trend-wise in British mm-hmm. Columbia, wh- what do you see happening here? Yeah, so the detached market uh, uh, absolutely took off since COVID. Uh, so just a few numbers since we, we kind of uh, calculated since March of 2020, kind of the in- onset of uh, COVID. And there's actually five areas in Greater Vancouver that are 60% or higher in their pr- uh, price increases. Just uh, July over July, so the, the assessed time from 2020 to 2021, there's actually nine out of the 20 markets are 20% or higher. So everybody will anticipate or expect uh, a rise in their assessed value this year for sure. Uh, well, we've certainly seen it. I mean, at this time of year, uh, perennially, since Chip Wilson bought that uh, incredibly right. large home on Point Grey Road, that is sort of like the touchstone of like, well, how much did Chip Wilson's house go out, go up, excuse me? Right. So that's actually, I believe, over uh, $70 million now. As of the uh, last assessment, it was kind of reported throughout a lot of media outlets. What's interesting to me is actually the price differential between the Fraser Valley Board and the Greater Vancouver Market. So Mm -hmm. back in 2016, the average price or average uh, home was selling for roughly a differential of $702,000. As of December, this last month of data, that's down to $427,000. So the, the tertiary markets, the secondary markets, really any market that was below a million has seen the most rapid rise over this COVID pandemic. Of course, there was a lot of desirability to have extra land, more square footage in the house, which puts you out to the outlying markets, but those markets really have taken off. And uh, the historical market leaders turned to a lagger for a period of time, but over the last six months or so, those markets have started to catch up. What's interesting is that the price differential um, between the, the assess mar- assessment from 2020 to 2021, the market on average in Greater Vancouver was up 19.5%. Just since July of 2021 to December of 2021, we have an additional rise of 13.2%. So the market has continued to evolve higher. That just puts real estate out of reach for so many people because clearly our incomes are not rising at that same rate. You're, you're absolutely correct. And what is a worrisome factor is inventory really across the board uh, in the detached market, both here in Greater Vancouver and in the Fraser Valley, are at all-time lows. Like since 2005, we haven't seen a lower amount of inventory on the market than what we currently see. And in the condo market, there's only three data points from 2017 that are actually lower than where we sit right now. So I do anticipate the condo market to start to pick up throughout 2022 Again, because of that price differential, you'll see some larger units. Buildings with more amenities uh, will start to sell uh, at a higher price coming forward. And uh, you can potentially see some of these markets that have exploded for phenomenal gains uh, since COVID. Just for a quick example, Pitt Meadows uh, from March of 2020 to the current average sale price of $1.692 million is up 87%. Wow! So a torrid Seven? Oh my Correct. goodness! And wow, Bowen Dane, Island, those are some, yeah, yeah. An, another Bowen. outlier from nine hundred and four thousand in March of twenty twenty two, two million dollars. So it's up one hundred and twenty two percent. Bowen Island, ridiculous numbers. Yes, 
Those are ridiculous. Where Dane Itell is the founder and lead analyst at Itell Insights. It's just, I mean, I, I have to take a moment. I wasn't expecting. <laughs> those, those are some unbelievable stats. And and I have to imagine with people in, unable to travel, uh, all of the travel dollars perhaps went into finding a recreational property. What are we looking at in terms of, of how some of the more, you know, lake house, ski chalet, uh, you know, the properties in more remote areas and, and purchasing that greater piece of land. Have we seen an increase in that regard? Well, just for a quick example on that, Whistler. Um, so the again, since COVID, it's up 51%. But more importantly, it's actually just hit its second all-time high in sale, average sale price of 7269000 for a detached property in Whistler. Oh my goodness. This is got I mean so it's great news for people that are in the market, but it's absolutely devastating for people that have been scraping together what they can to put down that 30%. I mean it's just for the first time home buyer. Really over the last couple of years with no immigration um and that will, you know, eventually start to come back into the market which you can expect more price anticipation or escalation going as uh, the inventory remains low and there's more uh, people coming uh, wanting to live in the city. So in, with regard to how this impacts um, property taxes, obviously, I mean, the, the val- right. people, people are sitting on a great deal of wealth all of a sudden, and yet they're going to have to pay a percentage of that to stay in them. Does that put some at risk in that regard? Uh, it doesn't necessarily put you at, w- at risk because you could always pull equity out of the property at very right. low interest rates, which is something that uh, could be necessary because, as you say, the prices have increased so dramatically. This wasn't likely anticipated by the average homeowner. So this this could put a little bit of a squeeze on some people um, and, and potentially even see some uh, some more listings come to the market just because of the fact they say, you know what, the prices are at all-time highs. It's time for us to take our retirement check and enjoy Vegas or Arizona. <laughs> Oh, indeed. Okay, well, great insights. That's why you're the founder and lead analyst at ITEL Insights. Dane, thank you for doing this. Thank you so much, Jody.